That's such good news, isn't it? That the wounds of Jesus paid my ransom. All of sin's grip on my soul has been broken because of the payment of Jesus on the cross for us. Hallelujah for our amazing salvation, our amazing Savior. It is so good to worship with you today on this Orphan Sunday. We've set aside today to, to focus on orphan ministry and celebrate God's grace to us. Certainly it's God's love that has uh, adopted us to be His forever family, forever with Him, and we praise God for His salvation in that. Today we're going to open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where we look at verses 3 to 11. And while this passage doesn't directly mention orphans, we're going to find and apply it to uh, orphan ministry and really all of our gospel ministry as God's church. So if you don't have a Bible with you today, please just raise your hand. We have Bibles. We'd love to give you a copy of God's Word that you can have in your lap, open and in front of you as we walk through 2 Corinthians chapter 1 today. Now, before we read the scripture, just a couple of things. First, I want to say a special word to all of you and your families who may be personally involved in foster care or respite care or adoption or some type of orphan care ministry. If that is you, just know that this church loves you and we appreciate you and we see what you're doing for the glory of God and we are praying for you. And today is a beautiful day to just celebrate all that God is doing in you and through you. So if that's you, please know you are loved and we appreciate the sacrifices you are making. You might say, well, why did you pick 2 Corinthians chapter 1 for Orphan Sunday, it doesn't even use the word orphan. Why would, we, why would we focus on that chapter? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is all about God's amazing comfort to us in overwhelming suffering. So guess what? Even if you're not involved in orphan ministry, you can't check out from this sermon. No one gets a free pass today because this message is actually relevant for all of us who are doing any kind of true gospel ministry that we need the staying power of God's mercy in order to fulfill any gospel ministry that God has called us to. But today I'm going to apply the comfort of this chapter directly to orphan ministry and this specific application of how we are called to minister to hurting and vulnerable children. After all, when you think about the suffering of orphans, it's often overwhelming. There are afflictions of grief, rejection, abuse, shame, are often unspeakable and soul-crushing. I mean, if you just try to think about navigating your own survival and well-being apart from the care and support of a compassionate and competent parent, it's profoundly overwhelming. And anyone who personally loves a child who is suffering in this way understands how sacrificial and how disorienting such love can be. To really love orphans like God loves orphans 
is to enter into a roller coaster ministry of extreme highs and extreme lows with unexpected twists and turns that often threaten us to give up and despair and become cynical or jaded. So my point is this, fostering and adoption, doing it God's way is really, really hard. It will necessarily immerse you and your family in immense suffering. And that's why we need to hear the message of 2 Corinthians chapter 1 on an Orphan Sunday. We all need to remember the abundant comfort that God has for us if we're ever going to keep comforting others through overwhelming suffering. So if you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand one more time in honor of the public reading of God's word. As I read for us, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 11, and I'm reading from the ESV translation. Paul writes this in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must, must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. This is the reading of God's word. You can be seated. And I'd invite you to pray with me before we preach through this text together. Let's pray. Dear Father of mercies and God of all comfort, we come now profoundly dependent. We've read a glorious text that that speaks to us of your comfort for us. And yet, Father, our hearts are fickle. Our hearts are fragile. We are so prone to being distracted this morning. And Father, if we're not careful, we're going to waste our time here. Your word and your spirit is real, it is true, it is alive. Your spirit desires to show us glorious truths from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And yet, if we're honest, many of us this morning were just kind of blah. 
and we're just kind of here. And Father, that needs to change right now. We are praying for a supernatural renewal of your spirit in our minds this morning, right now. We are praying, Father, that you would free us from sin. There's nothing that will hinder us from from being transformed by the power of your spirit through the preaching of your word except our own sin. And so, Father, I pray that even if there's any unconfessed sin right now in our lives, that you you would set us free, that you would forgive us and you'd cleanse us and you'd purify us and and that you'd renew our desire and thirst for spiritual things and you renew our hunger for knowing Jesus in a deeper way and that you renew our craving for your mercy. Truly, if you do not give us mercy, then we will fall. So Father, please help us. Purify your church. Do something supernatural in this hour that your people would be fed by your word, by your spirit, and that they'd be empowered and transformed to love like you love. We wait expectantly for you to do just that for the sake of your glory. Amen. Well, loving orphans the way that God loves orphans is very costly. In the state of Illinois, just to do one domestic adoption will cost you anywhere between $10,000 and $50,000 with the average cost of a domestic adoption being just slightly north of $30,000. But of course, the greatest cost of adopting a, a child is not financial. Adoption requires countless hours of paperwork and sacrifice and legal proceedings that can go from months even into years. Loving orphans the way God loves orphans painfully opens your own heart to the brokenness of sin and the brokenness of our legal system and the brokenness of our social services. Further, these tireless ministry of personal sacrifice to orphans has no promise of reciprocation. Far too often, a beloved child will will willfully reject your loving help. And of course, the pain of watching a child that you love dearly continue to make self-destructive choices runs so deep that only God himself can truly relate to that pain that you experience and that sacrificial love. To love orphans the way God loves orphans requires such an overwhelming amount of suffering that we could honestly ask, well, what would ever cause somebody to voluntarily give themselves to such costly suffering? What keeps a foster parent or an adoptive parent serving when such sacrificial love costs so much? And today we're going to find the answer to those questions in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul's main point is that God's comfort supernaturally empowers ongoing ministry through overwhelming suffering. It's God's comfort that is the answer. God's comfort is why Christians don't give up when they continue to pour themselves out in overwhelming suffering. God's comfort is the fuel or the power that keeps Christians loving even when that love costs them far more than they ever expected it to cost them 
when they signed up for this ministry. So if you're currently involved in any kind of orphan ministry, foster care, adoption, or, or frankly, if you just desire to, to serve Jesus with any gospel-centered ministry, then you must know the comfort of God. For only God's comfort to you will supernaturally empower your ongoing ministry to others through overwhelming suffering. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to race through verses 3 to 11, and we're going to note the comfort of God's person, the comfort of God's provision, the comfort of God's purpose, the comfort of God's promise, and the comfort of God's people's prayers. And then, at the end of the service, we're going to respond to all that by taking communion together, by remembering Jesus' sacrifice for us, which brings the greatest eternal comfort to the human soul that it could ever possibly experience. So let's first consider the comfort of God's person in verse 3 which empowered Paul, the Apostle Paul, to keep suffering for, others eternal, for other people's eternal joy. Verse 3 reads this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. Now, there is so much here. Look at the text carefully. Paul begins by praising or blessing God as the, notice, the God of Jesus and the Father of Jesus. Now that's kind of interesting. God is the God of Jesus and the Father of Jesus. Jesus is God, but God, like, well, this is a veiled reference to how Jesus took on human nature. He actually added human nature to his divine nature, and he became the eternal God-man. 100% man, 100% God together without contradiction, the God-man who alone is qualified to save us from sin. You see, since Jesus was 100% human, then God was his God. But since Jesus was also 100% God, the God was his Father. So Jesus is both the Son of God and he is the Son of Man. And then notice in the text, he is Lord, meaning he is the sovereign ruler over all. And he is the Christ, meaning that he is God's Messiah. He is the anointed deliverer from God who comes to save and deliver his people from their sins. So just in this opening phrase of verse 3, we've already learned that Jesus is the perfect God-man who is both Lord and Savior. So don't miss the comfort of Jesus, friends. The first way God empowers you to suffer for him is by saving you from your sins. You'll never persevere through the suffering that all gospel ministry requires if you are still trying to pay for your own sins. No, the way God empowers you to serve is first by forgiving your sins. Isn't this glorious? So ask yourself, I mean, be honest with yourself. Have you trusted in Jesus' death and resurrection for your personal relationship with God? Do you know Jesus, the Son of God? Do you know Jesus as your Lord, Master, and Savior? 
Have your sins been washed away by his shed blood? Are you trusting in his death and resurrection for your personal friendship with God? After, way, after all, the only way, the only way that you can really know God is through faith in Jesus. Trusting Jesus and his bloody sacrifice is the only way we can come to personally experience God's comfort. Only after you've been born again by the Holy Spirit and you begin to love Jesus and trust Jesus will you ever experience the comfort of God's person in your own life. For notice the two ways Paul describes God at the end of verse 3. Do you see it? He describes God as what? The Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Now, this is beautiful. <laughs> this is good. Literally, this means our God is the Father of all undeserved compassion. And He's the God of all strength alongside. Notice, loved ones, this is not just what God does. This is who God is. Our God is the Father of mercies. He is the source of all compassion and favor that is undeserved. He is the wellspring of compassion. He is the fountainhead of pity. He is the eternal, inexhaustible source of mercy. The Lord's mercies never fail. His loving kindness never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. Our God is the Father of mercies. And He is the God of all comfort. Now listen, because... If you are counting, this word comfort shows up 10 times in verses 3 to 7. So it's really important that we understand what this word means in the context. Because when we think of comfort today, we think of a soft, cuddly, peaceful feeling. We think of a nice, warm blanket. Ah, a big, heavy meal. Comfort, right? But that's not what this word means here. In this chapter, the word comfort is the word paraclete, which literally means to bring strength alongside. So comfort doesn't mean relief because no Christian ministry is ever going to be comfortable. Biblical comfort refers to an ever-present help in a time of need. Biblical comfort is the staying power of God's mercy that keeps us pouring out sacrificial love and care for others even when it's so costly and painful to ourselves. For through faith in Jesus, Paul has come to know that God himself is the source of all of his help and all of his strength that his ministry demands. So that's the comfort or strength of God's person. Now in verses 4 to 5, Paul describes the comfort of God's provision or his portion. Because notice in verse 4, it is God. It is God who comforts and strengthens us in all of our affliction, in all of our crushing pressure. So our primary energy for sacrificial ministry doesn't come from sleep. It doesn't come from recreation. It doesn't come from good friends. 
It doesn't come from motivating books or conferences that we can attend on orphan care or adoption, as good as all of those means of grace truly are. No, God himself is our strength. God himself is our portion. Our provision is in being unified with God himself. After all, here's the wonder of God's salvation. If you're new to Christianity, then then I want you to really catch what I'm about to say. Okay, listen up. The wonder of God saving us from our sins is that God actually hides us in Christ. When you become a Christian, when God causes you to be born again, your life is actually united with Jesus' life. You become a new creation in Christ. Our identity changes so that now our very life is united with Jesus and, and so much so that we could actually say with the Apostle Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, why do I point this out? Because look at verse 5. In verse 5, it teaches how all Christians are sharing abundantly in both Jesus' comfort and Jesus' suffering. Do you see that? So Paul is rejoicing in God's abounding and overwhelming comfort and help that comes to him through his faith union in Jesus. Paul is emphasizing his spiritual oneness with Jesus here. Why does he do that? Because when life gets hard and our ministry starts to cost us more than we think we can give, we need to remember that Jesus also suffered. And if we want to look like Jesus, and we want to live like Jesus, and we want to love like Jesus, and we want to smell like Jesus, I don't know about that, but then we should expect to suffer like Jesus too. We should not be surprised when our sacrificial love is spurned or rejected, for so also was Jesus. We ought not to be thinking so strange when we're mistreated for doing good to others because that's how they treated Jesus too. In fact, when we find ourselves experiencing the crushing pressure of affliction in Christ-like ministry, we ought to rejoice to actually Thank God and rejoice that we are able to share in the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings so that we might also experience the resurrection power of Christ as well. Paul wants us to be confident of this. As we share in Jesus' suffering, so we will share in his glorious comfort. Jesus' suffering ultimately resulted in glory. And so likewise, when we suffer for Jesus' sake, we can have the confidence that the spirit of glory and of God himself is on us. God himself is our portion. The comfort that the Christian receives is that we are one with Christ. And though we may suffer with Christ and we might be overwhelmed in that suffering, we are never separate from Jesus himself. The life of Jesus with all of its suffering and with all of its glory is our provision. So then rest in God's supernatural comfort. Understanding, after all, that God doesn't give Jesus to us just as the ends, but as the means 
to a greater end. We see this clearly back in verse 4. Look there. Look at verse 4. Why does God comfort us in all of our affliction? Do you see the words, so that, in the text? The purpose for why God comforts us in all our pressure is so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Circle that word, any. I love this church. This means that God gives grace to us so that we might share his grace with others. This means God blesses us as the church so that all the nations of the earth might be blessed. This means that God comforts and strengthens and helps you and me so that you and me can best strengthen and comfort and help others. We must never hoard God's comfort to us like foolish stewards. Instead, when we receive God's supernatural strength and help in our suffering, it's so that we might turn around and share that then with others in any kind of suffering, even if their kind of suffering is far outside our own personal comfort zone and far beyond our own capacity and ability and experience. And this leads us to the comfort or strength of God's purpose, God's purpose that is shown in verses 6 and 7. Look now at verse 6 and ask yourself the question, what is God's purpose for all of Paul's suffering in his ministry? Certainly Paul was suffering in very, strange, very severe ways. What, what divine purpose was underneath all of this pain? What, what is God's what is God trying to accomplish when, when my ministry to others and my, my love to others starts to cost me so much that I, I don't know if I can continue to do that? What is God's purpose for such deep affliction? Verse 6 says, if we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Paul says, our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. In other words, whenever Christian ministry takes you far beyond the limits of your own resources, and you're just overwhelmed, you need to know that God desires to use your suffering to serve the salvation of other souls. And when God's spirit is strengthening you to keep enduring in your, in your suffering love for others, know that God is comforting you and sustaining you ultimately so that others can receive his grace and his comfort through you. You say, well, Kevin, um, can you just make it simple? I, this verse is kind of confusing to me. I, I don't know that I quite get it yet. Well, okay, since you asked. I'll say it as simply as I know how to say it. Verses 6 and 7 are basically saying this. Your life is not about you. God has a grander purpose for your life than your own temporary relief or your own emotional well-being. Verses 6 and 7 teach that God often brings salvation to others through our suffering, and he brings strength to others through our weakness. 
In other words, our momentary light affliction is chained to an eternal weight of glory. Your sacrificial love is making God himself tangible to other souls that they might know him and experience who God really is as the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. So there's no gospel ministry that could ever cost us too much or ask too much from us. There's no personal weakness that we have that should ever go deeper than God's comfort and strength goes deeper still to bring about the eternal joy of others for God's glory. So then we ought not to despise the overwhelming suffering and profound weakness that we experience when we follow Jesus in our ministry to others. Because Paul understands it's often through dying to self that God is going to bring himself the greatest glory. It's just what he wrote in chapter 12 later in the same letter when he says, God's grace is sufficient for you for God's power is made perfect in your what? God's power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, Paul says, and this is, this is so weird. But he says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. For when I am weak, that's when I am strong. Loved ones, listen, please. Sometimes the greatest obstacle to your ministry is your delusion of strength. And if you're only willing to enter into ministry that you can manage that you think you're ready for, that you feel like you can handle, then your fear is actually constipating God's glorious purpose for your ministry and his glory in your life. See, this is the miraculous J curve of following Jesus. Everybody draw a J in the air like this, a J curve. You know what I mean by J curve? It means the way up is the way down. You... Jesus says this way, whoever seeks to save his life will actually lose it. It's only after you lose your life for my sake that you will experience the satisfied life. We must die to self and our own selfish fears and protection and self-reliance before we begin to experience the resurrection power of Christ that gives us true life. So we're learning how God's comfort supernaturally empowers our ongoing ministry through overwhelming suffering. We've already noted the comfort that comes from God's person, the comfort that comes from God's provision, and the comfort of God's purpose. Now verses 8 to 10 reveal the comfort of God's promise. Paul writes, we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Now, we don't know. We, we don't know for sure what specific suffering Paul's referring to here in his life. We don't know what overwhelming pressure that he was referring to. But Paul vulnerably explains the effect of this pressure on his own soul when he goes on to write, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our, our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt like we had received a death sentence. So notice, notice this, church. The suffering and pressure of Paul in Asia was so severe that he became so depressed that he became suicidal. He felt there was no way out. There was no escape. 
There was no escaping death and ruin. Now, loved ones, can you relate with Paul? Have you ever lost hope? Have you, have you ever wondered if, if all your ministry and all your love was for nothing? Has your, has your path of pain in your ministry to others brought you to the place where the tears actually stop and you just become numb in despair? Well, Paul understands that. And Paul wants to speak right into the darkness of that moment and that despair. He wants to give you an unshakable hope as he now writes in verse 9, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, a God who raises the dead. Oh, church, whenever you follow God's calling for ministry in your life, your obedience to Jesus will necessarily take you to the end of yourself so that you have no means of self-reliance anymore, but you can only rely on the God of resurrection power. You see, the comfort of God's promise is that he purposely uses overwhelming suffering in our lives to bring us into a deeper death of trusting in self. I'm pretty sure I didn't word that the best way, but what I'm trying to say by that is that one of God's purposes for our painful suffering is to wean us away from our self-reliance. Also that we can have more confident hope in God's deliverance and less confident hope in our own ability to manage our way out of this situation. Verse 10 triumphs, for God delivered us from such a deadly peril. That's past tense. And he will deliver us. That's present tense. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. That's future tense. In other words, God is faithful all the time. He's the father of tender mercies. He's the God of all strength and resurrection. He is more concerned, church, about making us holy and more satisfied in knowing him than he is ever concerned about preserving our emotional serenity. So yes, orphan ministry, just like all true Christ-like ministry, will cost you much loss to your pride. It will cost you much loss to your self-reliance and your self-sufficiency. But when you approach such ministry depending only on the God of resurrection, this death to your self-reliance will yield a bountiful harvest of joyful confidence in God's deliverance, his deliverance that comes through supernatural resurrection power. So allow the comfort of God's purifying promise to supernaturally compel your ongoing ministry through overwhelming suffering. And then receive as well the comfort of God's people's prayers in verse 11. For there's truly no such thing as an independent gospel ministry in Jesus' church. I really feel like I need to say that again because it's so important. In this day and age, can I say it again? There is no such thing as an independent gospel ministry in Jesus' church. There's no such thing as a lone ranger minister. Even the apostle The Apostle Paul understood that God's comfort and God's help and God's strength came to him in the form of the church's prayers. 
So he wrote in verse 11, so you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted through the prayers of many. In other words, if you are currently engaged in any kind of gospel ministry, if you are engaged in any kind of foster care or orphan ministry, God intends to bring you comfort and strength through people's prayers, both for your necessary help and for his multiplied glory. There's simply no other way to endure in significant ministry through overwhelming suffering apart from the fervent prayers of God's people. Those of you who are already engaged in any kind of orphan ministry, you understand this. Orphan ministry will absolutely require the prayer support of your church family. Paul says this is a must. So loved ones, if you are engaging in the overwhelming suffering of any Christ-like ministry. Are you asking your life group to pray for you? Are you inviting your church family to pray for you using the the check-in cards or the the app or the the website? Do you see these prayer request forms as a joyful invitation to God's comfort for you? Isn't it interesting that Paul is asking for prayers so that? What's the reason that Paul desires prayers? He says in verse 11, so that many will give thanks for how God supernaturally answered the prayers. In other words, Paul was seeking prayers so that God would get more glory from everyone who has joined with his ministry in prayer. The main concern of Paul's prayer request was to get more of the church family a personal experience with God's active grace. So that God would be greater glorified when the prayers were answered and his ministry was miraculously sustained through overwhelming suffering. So that's the point of this text, loved ones. That God's comfort supernaturally empowers ongoing ministry through overwhelming suffering. There's only one reason that weak and inadequate people like me and like you can truly endure and persist in any overwhelming suffering of true gospel ministry. And that is because God is our comforter and God is our help and he's the God of all comfort and he's the father of mercies. His supernatural help comes to us in the form of his person, his provision, his purpose, his promise, and his people's prayers. Therefore, be encouraged on this Orphan Sunday to remember God's abundant comfort to you as you keep comforting others through overwhelming suffering. If God is calling you and your family to enter a God-glorifying ministry to orphans, then do so with great dependence upon the comfort of God. If you're already engaged in orphan care or some other gospel ministry, but you're tempted to give up, you're tempted to walk away because the sacrifices have just been too painful to continue, that hear the Apostle Paul triumphing in the staying power of God's mercy and renew your mind with God's abundant comfort to you as you keep sharing that comfort with others through the overwhelming suffering that you are walking through right now. After all, isn't that what our regular observance of communion is intended to do for us, to remind us and to, to cause us to remember how God, all that God is and all that he has done for us? You know, every two months, 
we set aside time in our worship services to eat a cracker and to drink a little bit of juice. And you say, that's kind of weird. Why, why do we do that? And it's simply just a physical reminder that it was Jesus' death that actually made all of us one and put us all together into one church family and has given us ministry together for his glory in central Illinois. It's all based on the cross of Christ. So we're gonna, we're gonna remember that in a moment. And if you don't have yet the communion elements and you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you wanna participate, just stand up right now, go get them at the, at the tables in the front and back of the room so that you're prepared in just a moment when we, when we eat and drink together. But the juice... The juice reminds us of Jesus' blood that was shed to, to cover our sins. And, and the cracker actually reminds us of Jesus' body that was broken. His body was broken, right? It was, it was completely abused on that cross in order to give us eternal life. So this ceremony that we're going through today reminds us that Jesus' sacrifice, it was his cross-bearing is the foundation to our entire life and, and ministry together. Jesus died to give us life so that then we could share his life and his comfort with those who are in any affliction, right? So now I'd, I'd invite those of you who have been born again by God's spirit to prepare to eat the cracker together by just peeling off that top clear plastic uh, film on the very top of your communion cup. And, and again, if you, if you don't have elements, just raise your hand. We, we got elements coming around. And let me just give a, let me give a warning, if I can, before we partake of this. So if you haven't yet trusted in Jesus' death and resurrection for your own salvation. See, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saved. I talked to somebody just a few weeks ago. They said, yeah, I, I pray to God all the time. I, I believe in God, but I know I'm not saved. Okay, if that's you, or if you say, yeah, I, I think I'm saved, but you know you are persisting in unrepentant sin. And right now, this morning, you, you know there's a part of your life you're not giving back to God. It's yours. And you're going to hang on to that sin. Please. Can I beg? Please, please repent of your sin before a holy God before you drink and eat judgment upon yourself. After all, just eating and drinking this symbolic meal is supposed to be a living object lesson of our true participation with the suffering of Jesus. But if you're unwilling to follow Jesus into the suffering of self-denial, if you're unwilling to follow Jesus into the suffering of sacrificial love, then you are not joined with Jesus. And you ought not to act like it by participating in some type of external religious ceremony that does not show the true spiritual reality of your heart. So, for those who have been united with Jesus' death. For those who have been united with Jesus' resurrection, by faith in Jesus, let's remember now how God brought abundant life and abundant strength into our souls through the death of his son. 
from the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and, uh, you know, as a Passover, they were celebrating the Passover, he, he took this bread and he broke it and he, he started to pass it around the room and, and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. So Jesus died to pay for our sins, church. He was the Lamb of God who satisfied the wrath or the anger that God had against my rebellion and your rebellion and your self-reliance and my self-reliance. All of that caused God to get angry. And all of God's anger was totally absorbed in the broken body of Jesus. Oh, can you see him giving up his last breath? as you cried from the crowd with the other sinners in hatred and rebellion against him? Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. Amen. We are the most blessed people in the world that we can participate with a Savior. We can become one with a suffering servant. And we remember that. Now, go ahead and peel off the, the purple lid to prepare to drink the juice, which represents Jesus' shed blood, of course. It's kind of humbling to realize that, kind of humbling, why bother, right? It's humbling. <laughs> it's very humbling to realize the overwhelming suffering that Jesus went through just so that sinners like me and like you could be adopted and part of God's forever family. I mean, I know it's still, still the morning right now, but have you, have you thanked God yet today for your salvation? I mean, church, have you praised God that he's the father of mercies who runs to greet the prodigal repentant sinner on his way back home? Our God is a God of mercy. Our God is a God of grace. Our God is a God who died in our place so that we can live the rest of our life, not to ourselves, but for him. How glorious is our God. So after Jesus had told the disciples the night before he was going to go to the cross, he, he told them, this bread represents my body and it's broken for you. They're saying, what's going on? This isn't normal Passover language for the Jewish tradition. And then he takes that third cup of the Passover celebration, the cup that represented the redemption of God, the cup that, that caused the Jews to remember how God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And he holds up that third cup and instead of saying the normal Passover liturgy, he looks at his disciples and he says, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as long as you drink this cup and eat this bread, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's drink together and celebrate that our God is a God of salvation. Amen. May God help all of us to remember his abundant comfort to us as we keep comforting others through overwhelming suffering. Would you pray with me, please? So, Father, we want to thank you and praise you that you are a God of salvation, that you are a God of mercy, that you are a God of strength and help. 
Father, we just pray that you'd please continue to purify our hearts, use suffering in profoundly purifying ways so that you would peel the grasp of our fingers off of our self-reliance and you'd call us to live dependent upon your resurrection, life-giving, supernatural power. Oh God, I pray that you would bring salvation to anyone here today who doesn't yet know you personally. Oh, they may know a lot about you, but I pray, Father, if they don't yet know you personally as Savior and Lord, as God of all comforts and Father of mercies, oh God, mercifully open their eyes, transform their soul from the inside out and cause them to love you and believe in you. For there is no greater satisfaction in life than obeying you. So, Father, I pray that you please take our life. Let it be a, an offering to you. Take, take our will, take our money, take our resources, take our energy, and invest it sacrificially in the sake of your kingdom. For there's no greater purpose for which our life could be spent. Please, Father, come and do your work in us, we pray. Amen.